Good morning, happy Sunday. I'm Jen and today's scripture reading comes from James chapter 4 verses 1 through 12. This is the reading of God's word. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but you do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word of the Lord. Well, again, happy one year anniversary to everyone here at Citizens. What a year it has been, not only for our church, but also for our city and our nation. You know, the one year when you have both the Lakers and Dodgers win championships, we're not allowed to have parades in the city. I mean, if that doesn't sum up 2020 for you, I don't know what does. But on a more serious note, uh, I just want to say again, from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Thank you for the love and support you've shown me and my family this past year. Uh, thank you for continuing to show up week after week in the midst of a year full of so much uncertainty and change. Thank you for being a daily reminder for me of what the church could be. And I'm just so deeply humbled to be able to serve this community, and I'm so excited to see what God has in store for us in the years to come. Well, if you're new or visiting for the first time, our church is currently in a series through the book of James called The Way of Faith. And we chose this title specifically because this book is an important reminder for us that faith in Jesus Christ is so much more than a one-sentence prayer you said when you were a kid in Sunday school. It's more than a few Bible verses you memorized along the way. It's a way of life. It's an identity that impacts every single thing about you. And each week, James offers us some very practical wisdom about what we should expect our lives to look like when we have truly internalized the gospel. And in the passage we're looking at today, James opens with a question. And if you haven't noticed by now, uh, James doesn't ever beat around the bush. He always gets straight to the point. And he asks this simple question. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? What causes fights and quarrels among you? Wouldn't we all like to know that in 2020? Like, what is it that's causing all the fights you have with your husband or wife? That same fight you've been having over and over again. 
What is it that's causing all the fights you're having with your coworkers or your parents or your kids? What is it that's causing all the fights you get into on Twitter? And I know everyone tuning in has an answer to that question. And I'm pretty sure your answer is never me. It never is. No, our answer to that question is probably it's him. It's his personality. It's his temper or it's her because she's so controlling and unreasonable, it's always the other person's fault. Well, if he never said that, I wouldn't have reacted that way. Well, if she weren't so lazy and did her job, I wouldn't have to yell at her all the time. If he were more understanding of all the stress I'm under, I wouldn't be so upset with him every day. Or better yet, we blame the circumstances. It's this quarantine that's making me this way. It's because I haven't slept in a few days. It's because work is crazy right now. It's always something outside of us. But James won't let us answer that question that way. Right away, he says, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? He's saying, could it be that the issue isn't out there, but in here? Could it be that the thing you're demanding from that other person, the thing you think you're so entitled to, the thing you believe is the source of your conflict is actually an issue with you and not them. And James boils it down to this in verse two. He says this, you desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. He's saying at the end of the day, that's the issue. This is why you fight and quarrel. You want something you don't have, so you'll do anything to get it. And in doing anything to get it, you will hurt people. In fact, it says you will kill to get what you want. You will kill to have it your way. You will kill to protect your agenda, your convenience, your preferences. And James is saying, when you stop and take a moment to look back on every relational conflict you've ever been in, you'll see this is the problem. We want something and we can't have it. You ever get into a fight with someone or have someone resent you solely because you had something they wanted? Why does she deserve to be married? Why does he have a job and I don't? How is it that she has the time and money to go to all these exotic places and eat at all these amazing restaurants? And then we create an entire narrative around that person. Oh, it's because she has rich parents. Oh, it's because he knows the right people. We demonize them to our friends and we love hearing gossip about them. Why? Because it validates the narratives we've created. And then boom, relational conflict. All because there was something we wanted but couldn't have. For some of us, it's a desire for status that leads us to use people or put people down to get to the top. For some of us, it's a desire to get even with someone who did us dirty in the past. For some of us, it's a desire to protect ourselves from any kind of criticism or humiliation, whatever it may be. James is saying the problem starts with a desire within us. That in the same way children lose their minds when they don't get what they want, adults are no different. Now, quick caveat here, okay? This is not to say victims of trauma and abuse and violence are at fault for what has happened to them. Please hear me when I say that. Please do not take this passage and go to someone who has suffered deep relational trauma and say, you're the reason this has happened to you. 
No, that isn't what James is saying. In fact, James spends most of his time in this book rebuking those who mistreat others, who show a lack of care and compassion for the weak and vulnerable. So no, James is not victim blaming here. What he is saying is that as believers, when we take inventory of all the different relational issues we've experienced or are currently experiencing, the first thing we need to do is look inward because there are desires there that we may be scared to admit. And not all desires are bad. Wanting love and security and acceptance is not bad. It's human. This is why James says, you do not have because you do not ask God. In other words, our problem isn't that we want these things. It's that we've misplaced the source of where those things come from. And we've put it on imperfect, broken people to give them to us. And so when they can't deliver, and I'm going to tell you right now, they can't deliver, it will frustrate us. It angers us. It makes us lash out. And more often than not, it's on the people who love us the most. And I love what James says in verse 3. He says this, When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. He's saying, first of all, you don't ask God for what you want. But even when you do ask, let's be honest, you're asking not because you believe God is the source of everything you need. You're asking because you need God to fix something that you believe is the source of everything you need. It's not, God, I need a job right now, but I know you're in control and you're going to take care of me no matter what. No, oftentimes our prayers go like this. God, I need a job right now, and then in parentheses, because a job will give me the security and comfort and reputation I want. God, I need you to serve me. I need you to fix my relationships. I need you to help me get to where I want to go. Who's God here? And we know this is the case because of how we react when we don't get the things we want, right? The first thing that often happens is that we start to resent God. We grow bitter because we believe he owes us and we inevitably start to demand the things we want from those around us. And this is where conflict begins. So what James is getting at here is that the real conflict isn't even a conflict with someone else. It's first a conflict between us and God. It's us wanting to be our own God. It's us wanting to place ourselves at the center of the universe to make our agenda supreme, to make God serve us. Which is why immediately James pivots from talking about our fights and quarrels with each other to our relationship with God. Listen to what he says in verse 4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Meaning, the issue underneath the issue, 
of why we fight, why we quarrel, why our relationships are suffering, is that we have placed ourselves above God. He says, when you become a friend of the world, when you begin to trust the world to save you, when you begin to buy into the lie that wealth and status and human relationships will satisfy the deepest longings of your soul, and then you're willing to go to extreme heights to fulfill your selfish desires, you have placed yourself on the throne. Which is why James says, submit yourselves then to God. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Understand who you are. I mean, listen to how strong James's language is in verse 9. He says, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, is James saying that Christians should be sad all the time, that we should never laugh? Well, no, we know that's not what he's saying because in chapter 1, he said, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. So no, what James is saying here is that if you really took a moment to grieve your sin, if you really took a moment to look inward to see how broken you are, if you really knew how helpless you were without God, if you knew what you really deserved, if you knew the way things were supposed to be, you wouldn't treat people the way you do. You wouldn't live your life as though you were the center of the universe. You wouldn't live your life believing that everyone and everything was created to serve you. You would live your life feeling so grateful for everything you've been given by God that having all your selfish desires met, having your agenda met, having your preferences and comfort met, wouldn't matter as much anymore. You wouldn't need to kill to get what you want. Rather, you would willingly die to the things you want for the sake of others. Do you understand that every day, you and I get hundreds of opportunities to either give in to our desires at the expense of others or give up our desires for the sake of others? Like I guarantee you, right after this live stream ends, Someone will say something to you or do something to you and you will have a choice. You will either have a choice to react harshly because you didn't get what you want or you will have a choice to lay down what you want to love that person. Like, do you believe that the very reason you are alive today is because someone, a mother or father or guardian, laid down his or her life for you? You know, when you become a parent, you learn very quickly that your life is no longer your own. Your comfort, your convenience, your time, your money, all out the window. Like, I would not be where I am today as a human being if my parents did not make a decision to lay down their life for me. When they immigrated to this country, they exchanged a life they could have had so that I would experience a life they never had. And when I look back on their sacrifice, it gives me the power to sacrifice for my kids. Like it would be ridiculous for me to sit here and blame my children for taking away my lazy Saturdays if I truly understood the reality that I'm only even here because someone else exchanged a lifetime of comfort and success for me. And when we humble ourselves before God, it is us acknowledging the fact that we're only here because someone exchanged his life for ours that every single thing we have today is a gift of His grace. We read it in James 1. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Everything that is good 
comes from the hand of God. And you know what the greatest gift he gave us was? He gave us himself. He laid down his own life for ours. The God who created the universe, the God in whom all things live and move and breathe, stepped into time and space and laid down his desires, his comfort, his preferences, and his will for you and me. And if we just grasp that, I guarantee you it would transform the way we interact with the people in our lives. Which is why right after verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord, James goes right back into what that means for our relationships. He says, brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? James is saying, if you truly understand who God is and who you are without him, you can't possibly slander or judge another brother or sister. It wouldn't make sense. Now, obviously, I know this is easier said than done, which is why I love what James says in verse 6 in the middle of his rant. He says, but he gives more grace. Meaning the same grace that saved you is the same grace that will sustain you. The grace that freed you from your enslavement to your own desires is the grace that will help you die to those desires every day so that you can love the people in your life the way Jesus loved us. And it's a grace that's always been there. You know when James in verse 8 says, come near to God and he will come near to you? It can sound like God will only show grace to us when we come to him first. But no, the Bible tells us God's grace has always been there. He loved us while we were yet sinners. He loved us while we were yet his enemies. He gave up his glory and his life for us at no benefit to himself. And because Jesus humbled himself perfectly, because Jesus submitted himself perfectly, because Jesus resisted the devil perfectly, God accepts you and me with our imperfect humility, our imperfect submission, and our imperfect resistance. You know, some people read verse 4 when James says, You adulterous people. And they see that as James being super condemning and harsh. But when you think about the implications of that word adulterous, it implies that we're already married. That even before we do any of the things James exhorts us to do, God has made a covenant vow with us. You can only commit adultery when you're already married. And so when you read James 4 that way, you no longer read these words as the words of an angry, distant judge, but as the words of a loving husband who only wants the best for his bride. You know, I think Ephesians 5.25 captures the imagery of James 4.1-12 perfectly. It says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Friends, love your parents as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Love your difficult coworkers as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
Love that guy who can't stop posting political memes that anger you. Love him as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We give our lives for the sake of others because Christ first gave himself up for us. Now, many of you have probably seen this photo floating around on social media. Uh, it's a picture that was taken in 1996, and it's a photo of Keisha Thomas, uh, who found herself at a KKK rally held in her hometown of Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, hundreds of protesters showed up to undermine the rally, and there was a point when a white supremacist with an SS tattoo and a Confederate flag on his shirt ended up on the protesters' side of the fence. And people began to attack him. They began shouting, kill the Nazi. And this young black high school student who probably wanted nothing more than for this man to get what he deserved, found herself throwing her body on top of his in order to protect him from the blows. And she was initially criticized for what she did, especially given who that man was, but she defended her decision by saying, you can't beat goodness into a person. Well, as the story goes, her actions set into motion a relationship with that man's son, who also happened to be present with him at the event. And Mark Brunner, who was the photographer who snapped this photo, in an interview about the incident, said he couldn't believe what he was seeing. He said, this girl put herself at physical risk to protect someone who, in my opinion, would not have done the same for her. Who does that in this world? And he's right. Who does that in this world? Who gives up their desires, their comfort, their needs, their way, their life to serve another? Only one who has been gripped by grace. You want to know the antidote to fighting and quarreling and relational conflict? Ask the Holy Spirit to press upon your heart the reality of God's immeasurable love for you in Christ Jesus. You know, I mentioned this at the beginning of our service today, but in two days, we will take part in arguably the biggest election of our lifetime, certainly the most talked about. And I'm not a super charismatic guy, uh, but I don't think it's an accident that our church's name happens to be citizens in a moment like this. I don't think it's an accident that our one-year anniversary happens to fall on election day. And I wonder, could it be that God in his divine providence orchestrating this whole thing so that in a time when everyone around us is talking about what it means to be a citizen of this country, we as his people might use this opportunity to reflect on what it means to be citizens of another kingdom, where the truest thing about us is not who we vote for, but who sits on the throne of our lives. That in a time when fighting, quarreling, judgment, and slander is the norm, that we would choose to be an utterly countercultural community known less for our political views and more for our humility, compassion, and love of neighbor. That we would be a community conformed to the image of Christ, the one who laid down his life for the sake of others. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for this poignant word today that I know all of us needed to hear, especially in the midst of so much fighting and division and conflict, not only in our own lives, but in our city and our nation. I pray for my brothers and sisters who are feeling anxious about this week. And while elections are undoubtedly important, 
I pray that we would not place our ultimate hope in the hands of a political candidate or party. In the end, we know that you are on the throne and that you are working all things for your glory and our good. So help us to lean into our identity as citizens of heaven, to be embodiments of Christ's love in a world that desperately needs it. We thank you for your continued faithfulness to this church. We entrust our lives into your sovereign hands. In Jesus' name, amen.